Hello, this is Mike Lewis, the founder and managing editor of Where Peter Is. Before we begin this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, I would like to make a special request. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is, and you have gotten something out of our articles and podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans or patrons to make a monthly contribution to support content creators like us. Running where Peter is is not free. Our apostolate has grown to the point where I have begun to work on it full time. If we are going to succeed, we need your help. If you would like to support our work, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you for your generosity. We can't do it without you. Every little bit counts. And now, our conversation with Sam Rocha. Greetings and welcome to this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. My name is Mike Lewis and I'm the managing editor of wherepeteris.com. And today, Paul Fahey and I are interviewing Sam Rocha. Sam Rocha is Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Education at the University of British Columbia. He is the author of Folk Phenomenology and the forthcoming The Syllabus as Curriculum. Thank you for joining us, Sam. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. So, Sam, you've started a little bit of a digital world tour since this pandemic started. You basically made an announcement on Twitter one day that I saw where you put yourself forward as a podcast guest for anyone who would have you. And also, I guess a few months ago, you did a debate on socialism with Trent Horn of Catholic Answers, who wrote a book saying that a good Catholic cannot be a true socialist. And then most recently, you had an interview with EWTN radio anchor Gloria Purvis about race and Catholicism. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how this digital media tour or whatever you want to call it came about? Sure. One of the things is I do realize that there's been a certain degree of the timeline or the life cycle of digital content or even a digital story is about 24 hours to 48 hours long. It can even last half a day in some cases if it hits at the wrong time. Believe it or not, I've been a sort of very online person since about 2005, 2006. Been blogging pretty much nonstop since then. And I've been a member of like Folks Nova, I've been the editor of Pathios. I'm saying all this to say that what's happened recently, I think, has been a sort of uptick for sure in my profile. But at the same time, a few years ago, I published a Jordan Peterson critique in a Catholic news agency that kind of created this big kind of a cloud storm of reactions. And then a few years before that, which I actually believe was the beginning of coming into this, you could say the kind of 
it's weird to come into a, a Catholic mainstream because there's no such thing. So it's like actually getting into the kettle where the tempest is, right? But uh, was my critique of Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, which he responded with a kind of uh, long screed against me, the American conservatives. The Dreher incident for me is probably the moment where people finally were like, whoa, Sam Rocha. But I actually don't feel like I suddenly started doing anything so much. But for sure, the Catholic Answers platform and the ability to have that debate through a YouTube live audience was a major you know, boost. And I'm grateful to them and to Trent for that along with the interest then that came after that from the podcast. And then while that was happening, George Floyd was murdered and those things happened. And I think whenever we're in the midst of what seems to be important on the one hand, but then reality transforms, you know, I had to speak out. And in the middle of that for us as Catholics, Gloria Purvis was, her show was temporarily suspended by Guadalupe radio network. And I was very outspoken about that. And I will continue to be outspoken about that. And that created the relationship with Gloria, uh, who I didn't know before that, which actualized in this interview. So yeah, that's, I guess, the history or that's my side of the story, the whole thing. Yeah, Sam, I've really enjoyed. So I listened to the, the, the debate you had with Trent and I enjoyed it. But more than that, I've enjoyed. And, and I don't know how you do all the podcasts. I can't keep up listening to, uh, to the podcast interviews you're in. but. I've really enjoyed them. There's a few that have stood out. I really liked your uh, interview with Jose of Conversations on Tap. I think he was able to break open some really good questions, more of what you talked about with Trent. But one that really stuck out to me was the Clerically Speaking podcast Mm -hmm. um, with Father Anthony and Father Harrison. And I enjoy those guys, even though they talk about books and theologians that I'm like, I have no no idea who these people are. But in that podcast in particular, you were critical of what you saw as a nominalist tendency in American Catholicism. I think you said something like church documents aren't policies and procedures, but that's exactly how American Catholics perceive them, mm-hmm. especially like within apologetic culture. And that really resonated with me, but I couldn't quite name why that resonated with me. So I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit, because I think it relates to this is something Pope Francis talks about. There's a section of his document, Evangelii Gaudium, where he actually says that the realities are more important than ideas as mm-hmm. a pastoral principle. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I was hoping if you could unpack that a little bit. So if you don't mind me plugging something that I wrote just to... So one of the things about this, and maybe I'm getting it to a point in the podcast tour where I'm becoming slightly self-critical or distrustful of a kind of narrative that because in some sense, whenever you have an emerging narrative, the narrative in some sense also creates its own kind of meta narrative behind it. So I'm seeing all of a sudden this view of like, oh, Sam Rocha is this recently arrived voice in the church. And my reaction to that is thank you. And (laughs) I, I feel like I've been around for a little while and I'm not as young as I was. So to your exact question, there's a an essay I wrote for Etica Politica in 2014 called Francis's Radical Realism, where I just where I get into that exact line of him about the importance of reality. And it's republished in my 2017 book of essays, Tell Them Something Beautiful. And I think this kind of what I'm calling at least Francis's realism is super important. And it's not, you'll notice, it, it's it hasn't been thus far 
the the source for my emphasis that when we speak about things, for instance, like socialism or Catholic socialism or the relationship between truth and history, which is the way the clerical pod, clerically speaking podcast put it, which I thought was really fantastic. That really captured the real thing. <laughs> I insist that we have to talk about reality. So like a lot of my case was built on existential counterfactuals, namely three venerables or blessed who were both good Catholics and true socialists. And so my critique in, in that podcast corresponds to, I think, Francis's concern, which is, I think, a very, it hits me in a very particularly Latin American way. I think the Novo Theologie coming out in the early 20th century never quite <laughs> was able to articulate fully that, that the need of the church was not simply to move into an epoch or an age uh, modernity, right? Um, but the Latin American bishops after the Vatican, the Second Vatican Council, when they came together to Medellin, but really before that, and as early as really the 50s and the 60s, Latin American theologians, activists, priests, lay people, they were accosted by their reality. The favelas in Brazil were so real. And the poor in places where there are slums, favelas, quidos, a cardboard colony is not something that demands an epochal transition or a sort of more or less world historical phase. It's something that demands something I think that's a little bit more urgent in many cases and also a little bit more concrete. And so the emergence of what some people today will refer to as, as liberation theology but I would re refer to more broadly as the emergence of the Latin American addition to the Novo Theologie, Ressourcement, Vatican II transition, in particular in the thought of people like Gustavo Gutierrez, but also the, not only the documents of Medellin, but also the ones that came out later from Puebla. They gave this real strong impression that our theology both lived, practiced, but also our doctrine needed to be capable of not just responding to the world historical reality of transition, which was very much, the, basically I see that as the backdrop of Vatican I and Vatican II, but also of the lived daily flesh and bone and marrow uh, question of like poverty. And I'm talking about poverty, not, oh, I don't know if I, how I'll pay my rent. Poverty in the sense of like poverty that kills thousands of people from their diet or that puts people in, in the kind of danger that is in many cases foreign to the sociological places where a certain set of ideas were being formulated. But whenever the, the thinkers in places like Elder Camara or even the situation like Tanzania with Julius Nerere, all of a sudden this urgency developed a different voice. And I've, I've gone on that long back to pull back. That to me is like signature, what I hear when I heard Francis say that at the beginning of his pontificate. It was so clearly uh, a part of the charism of the Latin American church that's been pretty much adopted, I think, uncontroversially, really. John Paul II, I think, had a lot of warmth in his heart for this because of the reality of his own situation in the Soviet Union. And I think whenever you're in a pincer technique between Nazis and, and communists, you, you feel this kind of urgency. I think there, there's a great essay by, it's called The Agony of Central Europe, 
And I think that there is this, this deep kind of the Balkans, that kind of region does have a deep pain inside of it that understands what this reality means. So Francis's realism interfaces more or less perfectly, but I would say not just Francis, but the, this larger Latin American voice interfaces uh, really consistently with what was really my main objective, both in the debate and that the Clerically Speaking podcast allowed me to go into more, which is a question of method. That whenever we begin in abstract principles, and especially when we begin in only abstract principles at the expense of reality, we fall into this nominalism, which treats ideas primarily just as name signifiers. And in general, I can see in like Ed Fazer and Trent's early emerging work as an apologist and others, there's also an Anglo-analytic influence from the Anglo-analytic tradition. And this, of course, is proper to it. William of Ockham is probably the father of nominalism. And the Scottish-British empiricist tradition, I think, in general, has given us this approach, which is powerful for the natural sciences. And, is, and I, I actually think nominalism is, is a fantastic uh, thing to use when you don't have to worry about reality. But whenever we're talking about things that, that emerge in the real, and whenever we take into account the, the concern for the real given to us by Francis and by the Latin American church, which is, of course, not just regional. These are eternal truths that happen to emerge in a particular circumstance. There you can see that. So walking in the door on virtual reality to that debate with Trent, it was really clear to me that he understood socialism to be basically a keyword and a series of bureaucratic documents that were... Uh, held together by the Holy See. And to me, it's not simply that the proposition he was putting forth was wrong. After all, it had a magisterial source, but it was that his very understanding of a magisterial source as a kind of bureaucratic piece of paperwork that gets added in his catalog that you can do a word search and find consistency across and build this kind of jigsaw puzzle. I think I called it analytic Tetris games or whatever, that this is the wrong way to it's not even, it's not particularly Catholic. It's foreign, I think, to the Catholic intellectual tradition that, that I know and that I believe in. And so to me, it was really the scandal of that approach to thinking one is in dialogue with the church that I wanted to address most of all, mainly because of the very real scandal that I saw that little book of his promoting, which was basically the idea that if you are anything that can be labeled a socialist, and we all know good and well that in the United States, socialism is used to label things that Republicans don't like. And so if you're using that word in a meaningful way, whether it's to talk about uh, Medicare for all, or to talk about the viability of a candidate to the left of the Democratic Party, or within the left wing of the Democratic parties, Ocasio or Sanders, or any number of, of people we can think of, the use of that rhetoric is to say, not only you can't do that, but in order to make you not do that, I'm going to threaten your faith. You can't have your faith and have that. So either you let it go and you go off and be a Democrat or you stay. And to me, this is a nasty, dirty, filthy trick that I've seen uh, come out of a kind of right-wing Catholicism informed largely by Protestant evangelicalism for a long time now. And I wanted to kind of stop that with reality real counterfactuals. And of course, the most pleasant one to offer was Frasati, the great beloved, and for good reason, by the way, beloved, blessed of many right-wing masculinity hawks in the church. And so that was that gave me a particular perverse pleasure, I guess. <laughs> I've seen that tactic of turning 
the word I think of is, is moralism. I lived mm-hmm. through that a long time up until only recently where once I actually started reading the church's social teaching, the word that came to mind was abuse of conscience. That's how I left that experience where I felt mm-hmm. like my conscience was was abused, where I wasn't actually able to freely assent to anything. I was forced mm-hmm. into a corner. What scandalizes me about it is it has nothing to do with the gospel. Getting to the first term that Francis was using, evangelium, it has nothing to do with the kerygma. It has, it's in some sense a, a sophistic technique for, for, for manufacturing a kind of consent and assent. And, and to me, the thing that like, because a lot of people have asked me, because, you know, one of the other things I complain about, and I'm realizing now that this complaint that I thought I was making just today is actually really old. I got upset with the kind of Francis fanatics <laughs> because I was like, look, I was defending the, the same principles under Benedict. And, and the document that really first separated me in my own experience of that moralism was John Paul II's Evangelii, Evangelium Vitae. That to me was for me the breaking point because he gives this list in that document of what are the life issues. So I read the paragraph with the list and I just said, maybe I was anomalous at the time, but I was like, there's stuff on the list that isn't on the list. So we need to put that stuff on the list. And the moment I did that, socialists, unfaithful, like all of these things came out. Going back a generation though, my my grandparents, and particularly my grandfathers who within the within my culture, the, the politically discussions came largely from conversations among men. My grandfathers were both lifelong Democrats. Both. Now they were Kennedy Democrats and they never crossed into the kind of Republican uh, Reagan uh, Democrat. But what was interesting to me that only took even longer was to then realize, wait, my grandparents sense of being Democrats and their daily lived experience and voting basically just a blue ballot up and down. It actually had its own moralistic capacity to argue from. I just was never exposed to it. But I've now, and that's, that signifies in some sense my move from a sort of neutrality of sorts, radical Catholic neutrality, into what you make, might say is a left or, a, or what John Paul II himself called a, a new Catholic humanism. I agree with the moralism thing. That was bread and butter. So as you're talking about nominalism, the thing that comes to mind, and not political or social, is Francis's document, Amoris Laetitia, in chapter mm-hmm. 8. Where he talks about <laughs> communion for the divorce and remarried, where he begins with the experience mm-hmm. and then reconciles it with the doctrine. But he starts mm-hmm. with the experience and that there's a lot we could say about that. But a lot of the critiques that I heard, I live in the United States, so most of the critiques I was listening to were, were coming from American Catholics. Sure. Many people couldn't even conceive of an, they couldn't even imagine an experience like what Francis was talking about. Mm-hmm. which just blew my mind. And so for me, like you're talking about this in terms of, of politics and socialism and wrestling with the real versus the nominal, but I see it in Francis's pastoral theology significantly where we actually have to wrestle with the person in front of us and the situation that they're in. And if we're not even able to imagine the situation mm-hmm. that they're in or even concede that it's real, that it's possible, which, yeah, when Francis is talking about mitigated culpability, I talked with Catholics who should know better, who couldn't mm-hmm. even imagine a situation where someone's divorced and remarried where they could have mitigated culpability. If they know that what they're doing is wrong, 
well, they're culpable. And that's mm-hmm. where the thinking stopped. And, anyway, so are, am I speak, are we speaking about the same thing here? I, I think we are, but I think you're going one level deeper. And that gets me deeper into the principles I carried into the debate. So Francis's realism was, I use that expression to express his prioritization of reality above other things. But I think like one could be genuinely critical of a sort of abstract idea of reality, because reality itself isn't the same thing as the actual stuff in front of you. And here I'll go again to John Paul II and the deep influence that both the Polish, but also European tradition of personalism which came out of phenomenology uh, that he studied in. In particular for him, the ideas of Max Scheler, who himself had a kind of pre-Catholic and then post-Catholic period in his life. No time to get into that. But the, the reason I'm saying this is that the question is, so what reality matters? Is it just abstract reality? In that case, you fall back into the same problem, maybe a kind of idealism of sorts. And I think the reality that matters is the reality of the human person. The reality of the human person, and we can take this all the way deep into the Christological mystery of our faith, into the Trinitarian mystery of our faith, arguably I would say the two absolute cornerstones of our theology, the two great enigmas and aporias of our tradition of thought, all the way to the favela and to the idea that Paulo Freire says that whenever I, I see the face of the poor, I see the face of Christ. I go to Marx to try and understand it better, but nothing changes the encounter with the poor as being an encounter with Christ, the person of Christ, and the, in the personhood of the face of the poor. And to me, Francis's method is actually put into practice. So he argues in Evangelii Gaudium, he, he offers us a set of principles of reality first, But then in Amoris Laetitia, he puts those principles into practice by first considering the person, by first considering their experience, which is, I think, perfectly, it follows perfectly from, on the one hand, Benedict XVI, his predecessor, who was not, is not a Thomist, and who took in his Augustinian approach at the center of Augustine's work. There's no lacking of systematic work. There's no lacking of a rich philosophy of language in the Masisro, but at the very core of Augustine's theology, his teaching is his confessions, the story of a person. And so to me, this personalism of of Benedict, and then drawing back into John Paul II and his deep formation in the phenomenological traditions of Central and, and Western Europe, when you put Francis together with those two predecessors, I think what we're seeing, and I I hope this doesn't sound like some kind of dramatic War of the Worlds account, but I think what we're seeing is actually a transition in the church's very approach to thought, where the empire of scholasticism, and in particular the Thomistic scholastic approach, which was not the only approach of its time. We could have easily, had we had a Franciscan Pope before a Dominican one, had a more Bonaventurian approach, you might say. But Nonetheless, there has been this kind of empire of scholasticism, of which Occam, by the way, is like the last gasp of, but we, but in the church, we held on to that last gasp. And I think that's how we can see almost a genealogy of nominalism to this day. But ever since, probably before John Paul II, but for simplicity's sake, for three popes now, we've been hearing three popes who are neither Thomists themselves, who have a priority of the person, And in Francis, this personalism is being drawn into a kind of realism that I think because of his cultural inflection is a bit graphic even for some some tastes. It's too real in a way. 
And I think the title of your podcast as a field hospital is like a great metaphor for this. Like it's messy in here. It's not uh, a dainty, lovely place. Before Paul asked three questions in a row. It's interesting though, because just by happenstance, this is the uh, second podcast we've done in a row with a Mexican philosopher. So Rodrigo was referring to uh, a lot of these similar things that happened with the Latin American bishops after the Second Vatican Council. And uh, he, he talked about how at the council, they were actually very quiet. And mm. the way he interprets that is that they were really praying and reflecting on what was being taught. Huh. And and I don't know if it's because he's actually he actually is a consultant for Salem, but he helped draft the Aparecida document, mm. of whom... Cardinal Bergoglio was the head of the drafting committee. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned to us in the podcast that if you ask Pope Francis about the two documents, and you mention Evangelii Gaudium, he'll say, Aparecida is the good one. Like, <laughs> as somebody who studied the life and, and history of Pope Francis, I, the image, uh, you didn't use the word, the barros mm-hmm. of, of Buenos Aires. And, and mm-hmm. one of the things that they said about him as an artist. You know, the reason for this is actually because the Argentinians always have to have their own pet words. <laughs> and this bothers me greatly. Okay. So the Latin America, we use the word ejido. Mm-hmm. But of course, just like the, the Argentinians don't even say they speak Spanish. Here's a really real cultural insight. If people want to get on the inside of Latin America, there are a lot of Latin Americans who find it very difficult to accept Pope Francis because why did it have to be an Argentinian? That's right. Yeah, no, I've, <laughs> I have, they, they don't like the Argentinians, but then they're like, I know a few Argentinians well, and they're actually pretty reason, nice. Let's be honest, yeah, soccer, <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of things. But one of the things, they sw- them and Puerto Ricans, I find especially, like to change words around. But yeah, Barros would be the equivalent of ejidos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, I've always lived in a very diverse area and I've known immigrants my whole life from Latin America. I've known African-Americans. I've always lived like right outside of Washington, D.C. But I've encountered people that have complicated family situations mm. or complicated marriage situations. And in some cultural contexts, it's like common law marriage is the norm in some parts of Latin America. And Pope Francis talked about this one time. And I remember the statement was something about the fact that there was a a culture community that was on the outskirts or beyond the outskirts of Buenos Aires. And Mm -hmm. the culture there was sort of a couple would move in together. And then when they started having children, they would become civilly married. And then Mm -hmm. when they became grandparents, they would have their church marriage. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that clearly there is, there's some kind of they're committed monogamous relationships. They have these complicated social reasons for why they just don't do what the church says. But he had a great compassion for them. And he said, mm-hmm. there, he said something to the effect of there's real grace in a lot of these unions. Well, that just set off an entire round of criticism. Oh, of I, know. Him. I know. Yeah. And myself, I've been married for 15 years. I grew up with in, in an intact family. I middle-class American, went to Catholic schools, went to college. And it's, that's something I, that I'm grateful for. Whereas I think the perspective is, oh, you think you can run off with someone that isn't your wife and then just march up to communion. Mm -hmm. And I guess that that is a colloquial way of of talking about this nominalism or this mental block that, that Paul was referring to. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of this also has to do across Latin America with different 
different responses to a very fierce and in this case kind of revolutionary secularism that has you know so the 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 porfiriato in mexico from 1910 that regime of the revolution remains the status quo political state of the mexican state and so it forbids it it, it was smart it was very effect it, it was very catholic in, in the negative sense of it understood where to hurt the religion. And so it went directly after marriage and said, you can't substitute a civil marriage for a sacramental marriage. You've got to get a civil one first. And then the sacramental can only become almost like a decoration of sorts. And I, and there was this fierce secularism of the Porfiriato created a, a different kind of marriage ritual in Mexico, which is heavily challenged and it's challenging to keep and creates any number of difficult circumstances for people and I think that these things vary from country to country, from place to place. And I think that Francis is, so on the one hand, he's Latin American, but on the other hand, he's just not being an idiot, right? He's just actually paying attention to the sociological realities of people on the principles we talked about. But there's something in bad faith about, I think, a lot of times the American overreactions to things because they're addressing a reality that just doesn't happen to be them. I was recently talking to someone on Twitter who was like, the church is dying. And I was like, the church has grown from 1987 to 2015 by like, you know, a, a billion or like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but like millions, millions of people. And he was just outraged. He was like, well, you know, and, uh, demographics are, I'm not, I'm not saying demographics are the church, but Americans do have this very exposed uh, side of them where anything that's not about them is offensive to them. And that's bizarre because Catholicism in a Protestant country like the United States of America has never really been the thing, you know? And so, you know, we're not the Philippines, we're not Poland, we're not Mexico, we're not, we're not Italy, uh, we're not France for that matter. And we're not the, the ruins of Alexandria. Like we're not, <laughs> we don't have any really rich or thick cultural access to those things. So we can't get all out of bent out of shape whenever all of a sudden there's something that's not about us. The Bible has nothing to do with this continent, period. This brings up something you talked about with, with Gloria in your interview with her mm -hmm. in, in Church Life Journal. I think it was Gloria who was talking about the Eurocentrism of Catholicism in the United States. I, she references... I think she references Pope Paul VI. That's when she talks about bringing uh, the, the gift of blackness to the church. Mm -hmm. But she has a line where she says something. I'm going to read it. If people could only see this as a gift instead of as something we need to Christianize. And by Christianize, they mean... Uh, Europeanize. Europeanize. And, mm -hmm. and this got me thinking. I was talking with... This was last fall. I was talking with a friend of mine. She's a black Catholic in the United States, mm -hmm. and she's not much of a Vaticanista at all. And it doesn't sound like you are much either. Mm -hmm. But we ended up talking about the, the Pachamama controversy mm -hmm. at the Amazon Synod. And my criticism of it is, look at these trads they're doing. They just they hate Pope Francis. They're just trying to throw him under the bus with everything they can. And she's like, yeah, it's racist. That's what this is. They can't conceive of an image a sacred image that isn't what they're familiar with. And they see it as pagan. They don't see, I forget who, maybe this was 
Um, but Dr. Fastigi, I think he, he may have said this in an interview recently where he's like, these were Christians, Catholics praying mm-hmm. in Rome. Mm-hmm. But somehow these American Catholics got, got the idea in their head that these were pagans bringing their pagan idols, that they weren't themselves Christian. So anyways, yeah, I think this, this is what you just said. Like, we can't conceive of a Christianity outside of our own experience of Christianity here in the United States. Yeah. And, and by the way, this is not a problem that a, forgive me for sounding elitist, but that even mildly educated European or even Canadian necessarily suffers from very much. It's really uniquely an American thing, I find, at least anecdotally speaking. And to me, it's really, it, it flies in the face of like even the most standard conservative reading of, let's say, the great books from Gilgamesh and Homer and Hesiod to the present. If you read everything there is of the sort of great books of literature from then to now, all of the early church is obsessed with paganism because it's all that there is intellectually on offer. And the question of whether Judaism belongs there or not or whatever is an open question flying around and there's loads of anti-Semitism, but also there's, there's, it's a non-starter for me. Even Tertullian, who supposedly took this really hard line, Athens, you know, what does Athens have to teach Jerusalem? Whenever you actually read Tertullian, he's not nearly as anti-Greek or anti-Eastern uh, uh, churches all. But like going back into scripture, like how many of those letters to Paul are to, are, are to the, I mean, it's, it's, if I said to Germany, we would laugh because it's a stupid phrasing of what of that time. So to me, one of the things that I find is really frustrating, and this is becoming my go-to thing, is it's not a matter of just racism or cultural thing. It's also a matter of just garden variety stupidity by people who largely don't want to do their homework and actually read the text that they claim to, tri- to, to see as this triumphalist canon of Western civilization and stuff. If you read Gilson's history of Christianity in the Middle Ages, He's very aware of the Oriental churches, as he calls them, and of the fact that the Eastern church prior to 1024 always vastly outnumbered the Western church in its demographic size. The Alexandrian church was just a major entity. And so to me, it's not just a matter of, of, I get a little bit concerned that, that we simply fix the kind of motivations or the bad faith as the only explanation. There's also objective historical reasons for why this allergy to everything that's pagan makes absolutely no sense for a Christian who quite literally takes their doctrine of the soul out of a pagan named Plato, who Christianizes a pagan named Aristotle and calls him the philosopher and uses his substance accident distinction as the key explanatory term for its most sacred sacramental sign, that being the Eucharist, transubstantiation. Like, get a clue people how did they get that the aristotle they got it from muslims who were they were in dialogue with like averroes and avicenna during the in other words like there's no basis in anything remotely real in this cultural uh revisionism that we see in the american psyche and so what i always want to call out is on the one hand yes motivations ideology racism white supremacy anti-black white supremacy but i also want to call out especially the people out there who all during my entire education 
taught me that I had to read everything and do all my homework and pay attention and not skip anything underlined. And that to be a conservative was to be an intellectual first and put the ideas in front of everything. Guess what? I did all of it to the T. And what emerged from that story was a powerful counterfactual account of even just basic history to the story that they tell and the story that they put in this triumphalistic way. You know, the best anecdote for Christopher Dawson is just reading the books that Christopher Dawson says that he read and realizing that he's a bad reader of those books. His history is atrocious, not because of any extra source you have to add, just read his primary sources and you'll realize that the guy's out to lunch. So to me, that's a, something that I don't think has come through as forcefully in other cases, but that, especially when I went to argue with Trent, like I didn't like that it was sometimes framed as Trent here is defending the church's teaching and Sam is this random online person talking about stuff. Brand like, new on the scene. Yeah, exactly. If you go and you look at my debate case and you look at my sources and you follow them back, you'll see I was relying on a completely and totally and absolutely Catholic case and sources. And in fact, a far more wider ranging discussion of Catholicism and Catholicity. I want to call out the so-called ultra Catholics for not being sufficiently Catholic. I want to call them out not for being too Catholic. No, their problem is they're barely Catholic. They're more American than Catholic. And I think they need to hear this and be forced to come to the table of reasons and actually put their readings on the line. You saw how erudite Gloria was, and that was improvised. That was straight out of the gate. No intro, no warm up. We just went. I said Du Bois. She raised me Du Bois to a more obscure Du Bois, which luckily <laughs> I had read. And we, we you know, went from there. But this is what I think in many cases, uh, we have to do. And people of color, I will say this, we know that we don't get a second chance. We know that, that you, you only get one shot to, to be more than just a scholarship boy, more than just the affirmative action case, more than just the this, that, or the other. And so one of the reasons why I think we're now, when we mature and grow and we come into our own and our own adulthood, we can come correct is because we've been forced to, and we know that you're going to check our receipts and we know we need to have them. And so I've done that now. And I plan to be a thorn in the side of these so-called ultra Catholics as long as I live. Yeah. That, it reminds me when you're talking about this anti-intellectualism, that's one of the things that Rodrigo was talking about to me when we discussed the modern traditionalist movement, he actually described them as very postmodern in their approach he said that a lot of the early traditionalists, yeah, they, a lot of them were ideologues and a lot of them were, um, believed in some bizarre things, but he was saying he compared the, the venerable or notorious Judeo-Masonic conspiracy theory, which is this elaborate built up full of internal logic. It's, it's bunk, but at least you have to be kind of smart to, to write it and to understand it. And he's saying that he's comparing that to today's, it's, it's QAnon. <laughs> he said, and he said something like, it's more X-Files than the tradition of the church. Yeah. And one, one of the things that, um, for example, when that entire incident on the Vatican, in the Vatican Garden took place, and th this is in the history of our site, it's like our traffic increased exponentially. We got a lot of attention for this. Pedro Gabriel, Gabriel, in, um, he's, he lives in Portugal. He's Portuguese. 
And so he's, he's multilingual. He can understand romance languages. He saw these accusations that this was a pagan ritual. And he decided to sit there and listen closely to the hour and 20 minute service that took place. He clearly heard the woman that presented the wooden figure to Pope Francis say that it was Our Lady of the Amazon. He read all the sources. He read all the responses. He read interviews that were in Portuguese and Spanish. And even though admittedly, it was a little hard to figure out what the figure was. And in in the end, basically what it was, it was a figure that was bought at a market that represented life, fertility, the Amazon people. And some of the locals gave that gave that image of their own accord a Marian significance. But it was one of many figures and symbolic items that represented their culture that were on this blanket, all within a Christian context. And it's just because it looked, quote unquote, like an idol, it was attacked. And yeah, this was some serious cultural ignorance. And the thing is, people are posting this stuff on the internet Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I engaged with Steve Ray, who is a Catholic mm-hmm. Answers apologist mm-hmm. on Twitter, and he said, do your homework, my friend. Well, Pedro wrote about 11 articles on this issue, debunking the things that were being claimed. Mm-hmm. Mitch Pacwa said, I know what paganism is, and what that was was paganism. Mm-hmm. The same thing was said by the papal posse on EWTN. They mm-hmm. were just insistent and nobody was doing their homework. They're like this important person, Mitch Packwell, he was in South America. He knows what pagan is. He saw mm-hmm. it. And I would refer them to this series of articles that Pedro wrote. And they just, there's just, no, there was just no reasoning with them. There was no, and I, I it's not as if they were coming back with, with intelligent arguments they were just maybe assuming I was stupid or maybe Mm -hmm. assuming I had bad intent or that I wasn't concerned about the truth and I was trying to trick them. But it's, yeah, it's a very postmodern approach where we aren't looking at the other person's arguments. Mm -hmm. We're just throwing accusations at people and standing our ground. I'd completely agree about in particular, this kind of postmodern thing, I find that a lot of the critiques of things like relativism, subjectivism, sentimentalism, postmodernism as a um, an inability to have any meaningful conception of truth or these things, it's become their tool set in a really ironic way. Although I have to say the Pachamama thing to me was like really funny because I remember being really young. And when I used to read first things like religiously, they, there was, I remember one of the first things that sent me kind of on edge and it was uh, a kind of review of a uh, celebration at Tepe, at Tepeyac at the Basilica of Our Lady of, of Guadalupe and outside of Mexico city. And the writer was clearly uncomfortable <laughs> with with those celebrations and i don't know if either one of you have been to the basilica and seen the deeply nawa aztec mode of of liturgical celebration the imagery which of course is like come on guys she literally appeared as an aztec woman with an aztec codex and like the tilma is almost indecipherable to a sort of western 
a European mine. It's completely built for Juan Diego, who was himself now was. It's not exactly rocket science here. But I remember reading that and seeing the discomfort. And to be honest, the, this early intuition of on almost a hostility of the so-called paganism of Latin America. And I think that, like again, this is a classic for one colonial response to uh, to entities that it does not see as as on par uh, or equal to itself but we can go back to Bartolome de las Casas and his advocacy for the indigenous people of the Caribbean and of what we now would call the Yucatan Peninsula we can see similar colonial expressions about indigeneity including Irish indigeneity and Celtic indigeneity and many other kinds of things including the barbarians who are now the Germans and the the kind of difficulties of the Roman church and that area my worry about pachamama frankly was that it was it was really blown up as if this is the first instance of paganism we've ever observed i mean literally to our dear Jewish brothers and sisters, Christianity, oh, and also to our dear Protestant brothers and sisters, we are pagans. And there are good reasons for them believing that. Muslims see our, our 2, 2D, 3D images as, as pagan. Our Eastern Christian and Catholic brothers and sisters, our Orthodox who don't, who use the iconographic tradition, see us as pagans. Why? Because it's mostly true. Christianity is in some sense a sort of uh, 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 a reset button on the very idea of religion that opens itself up to the world in a particular way that is not necessarily at odds with the world, for God so loved the world. And so to me, there's a deeper hostility that comes out in these moments that isn't even itself I think particular to South America or to the Andes or to any of the to the Amazons. That was the other thing is that like I thought Quechuas weren't from the Amazon. Like, how did you put Quechua people in the Amazon? Don't you know geography? Like again, like these are basic concerns you should have if you're uh, a thinking person and you have maps and stuff. But no one seemed to ask those questions. Yet supposedly they're the great intellectuals of our era who are giving us all the serious dives into facts and logic and all this stuff. They're jokes. They're clowns. They don't know a thing. And we, we need to call them out exactly on these terms, I think, uh, much more forcefully and much more frequently. But th that was yeah. one thing that just jumped out at me that this is referring to was that letter that was signed by the great Dominican theologian Aidan Nichols and John Rist and Peter Kwasniewski and a few other famous people that accused Pope Francis of the can canonical delict of heresy. Yeah. They brought up in their document a an incident where they said he was wearing a gay pride rainbow cross which it turned out was a cross that was the colors were in a different sequence they weren't in straight lines it was a symbol of salem for the different areas each area of latin america represented a color so mm -hmm. he's wearing a cross that he got at the youth synod that was in rainbow colors this was debunked thoroughly by Father Matthew Schneider, the, the blogger. Mm -hmm. We referred to, to his blog several times. I mean, it was, it was the, here's their webpage explaining what the cross means. And then, and the other thing was the claim that the, the crozier that he used mm -hmm. at the opening mass of the youth synod or the closing mass was a Wiccan stang. Now, 
it was presented to him by some young people. It was granted, it wasn't your traditional art, but it was basically a, a long staff with uh, V-shaped sticks coming up out of the top or you know, branches coming from the top and then a short stub in between. Mm -hmm. And then the two tall ones, there was a nail driven between the middle. And actually, if you look at the close-up of the stump, the little stump, you can see that there's a head carved in there. It mm. was a crucifix. <laughs> it was modern art. And that was thoroughly debunked by mm -hmm. people who took close-up pictures. Okay, it's not a traditional crucifix. We understand it's not what a traditional crucifix, what you'd want, what you would want a traditional crucifix to look like. However, it's clear that this is not a stang. It's indigenous art rep or representative or natural style representative mm -hmm. of a crucifix. And these supposed scholars yeah. Put these two urban, ridiculous, debunked urban legend conspiracy theories in what is supposedly a serious document accusing a pope of heresy. Yeah. What a joke. <laughs> but it goes to your postmodernism point. So modernist art was never about throwing interpretation up. It was about giving us kind of meta account of the medium as becoming sort of the art. So you have like the canvas that's just on the floor or whatever, you know, postmodern art went further from the sort of modernist awareness, I think of composition and using the composition itself as sort of the mode of art to basically say there is no uh, single fixed meaning, uh, almost like an ontological turn. Uh, it's not the arts making or composition. It's just art is art is art. It's this tautological turn. And, and it created room for kind of absurdism and stuff. And there's some interesting stuff here. I don't find Cage interesting in music and stuff, but Duchamp is kind of interesting. But it's been like 100 years now. What's so funny is if you know anything about these things, and the problem is a lot of these people don't, They've been using postmodernism in just as an anti-intellectual way. They wouldn't know, you know, postmodern condition if it stopped them on the street and asked them for change. They, they wouldn't know Leotard or, or Derrida if they're not reading it from some random off-the-hip debunking site that didn't read it to begin with either. The, the key marker of postmodernism is precisely to say there is no real, there is no meaning that needs to be affixed to things. There's no... There are no material. That was the big thing about modernism from Marx to modern art. The materials matter, right? The material. There's not even any matter at hand anymore. So we can make it all up and it's all just expression and self-expression and what have you. If you look at their horrible interpretations of objects, sacramental and artistic objects, like they wouldn't be able to read the Sistine Chapel's use of nudity today and if they use the same hermeneutic as the one they're using whenever they're interpreting indigenous expressions of Christianity, they wouldn't be able to understand Da Vinci or Michelangelo's very neo-Greco-Roman line and the particular representation of the body and its relationship to the gods and to the great mythic kind of apotheosis of humanity that the Greeks had. They can't understand any of those things if they use the same hermeneutic. The funniest thing to me that I've realized now in my 30s, because, you know, all my 20s, I just believe them. I thought I need to do more work. I need to study more. They must be right because they know all these things. And also they educated me. So, like, why would I question them? It was only in my 30s that I realized they don't even know the basics. Like, maybe some of them can read Koina and maybe a few of them actually know Attic. Uh, which usually all the 
oddly changes their view of the world and the way they, but most of them don't know anything. They're literally working off of like tertiary and accounts of things. And so their sudden scholarly stances on interpretations of objects, like sometimes people are offended when I remind them that the rainbow is God signed to Noah. And they're like, oh, what are you talking? I'm like, dude, it's the Bible. It's like a kid's story. You should read it. Like, really, you should grow up. And all my life I've been told, you need to grow up. You'll see this, all these things. I did. It's not true. The end. I think the project now is a constructive project. What comes after that? And that's very much where I see myself turning. And so now I'm willing to give a more constructive account of what I'm calling, at least for now, a kind of uh, Christian left or Catholic left. And that's, it could be a long time to come to, uh, but that's where I'm headed. Thank you for listening to part one of our conversation with Sam Rocha. Part two will be posted in the coming days. Once again, I would like to thank our Patreon sponsors for their generosity. If you would like to be a Patreon sponsor as well, please click on the link on our website. Finally, Sam Rocha isn't just a writer and a philosopher. He's also a musician, so please sit back and enjoy Little God, performed by Sam Rocha. Is this you that I am for? This I ask, I implore. And the fullness of the embrace, the lover hides his face. Abuelita, she spoke to you in a voice that I knew. She always added the same Spanish ending to my. Words small, these. Pr-
prayers redeem the fall. Diosito, are you there? Diosito, hear my prayer. Diosito loves the small. Diosito makes them tall. Diosito, I adore. Diosito, nothing more. Diosito, mora en mí. Diosito está aquí. Diosito está.